Hey there, and welcome back to From His Dot. I'm excited for our next episode on our fake news series, and I'm with Syed Shuva, who's a PhD candidate at the very prestigious University of Arkansas, one of the top schools for information systems. Syed's an aspiring academic, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, we met at a conference, and I thought, man, it'd be nice to get someone who's at a similar stage in their journey and kind of get their thoughts. Someone who's been brought up within the system, but also maybe has some thoughts that are not as well addressed by it currently. Welcome, Syed. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me. I was surprised when you invited me for the podcast. I'm like, you should be inviting uh, I don't know, more accomplished people. Uh, <laughs> but I totally agree that, uh, you know, sometimes it's just good to talk to your peers. Like, and I really enjoyed the last conversation we had at the conference. The, the, the timing didn't work out, but I'm just glad to, you know, catch up now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we jump into like the questions and stuff, and we'll ask Syed about his background, we're going to be probably having multiple conversations at once. So I hope that different audiences can enjoy this at different levels. There will be the fact that we're both PhD candidates and we're going to lament about some of the stuff that we see going on and and how we like to change some things, in particular with fake news research, but also, you know, the dynamics of, hey, you meet at a conference. What is that like? We met at the Big 12 in my symposium earlier this year. Still have the pamphlet off to the side. And I was in the fortunate but somewhat terrifying position that every student fears. This was my first conference in the academic realm, where I was the last conference on the last day. No other conferences going along in parallel. I think it was the only one like that. So anyone who stuck around to the end was in that room. And I very much appreciated Syed's comments after the talk, uh, which were, first of all, very good in terms of like being aware of the bigger picture of fake news. Um, I was presenting a game theory model for a simpler, smaller slice of fake news. And he was asking the big picture questions. And I thought, ah, it is refreshing to hear an academic who does not presuppose that we know everything that we need to know about fake news and is looking at the different kind of forms it can take and and the uh, difficulties in operationalizing, diagnosing, having prescriptions and and studying fake news. So we had a great conversation. So I agree. Um, It was a little pressed for time because it was very much end of presentation. Okay. Shuffle, shuffle everyone out. Everyone's got to get home. Um, you know, you had a little further to go than I did, uh, getting back to Arkansas. I just had to go back down to Houston. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a blast. Yes. And, uh, now I remember that your presentation was actually probably the last presentation of the session. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was almost a packed room. I tried not to focus on that part. (laughs) Yes. It was quite a, like, a. Because uh, like normally what I do is I, I take the pamphlets or, you know, they send out the schedule uh, up ahead and I usually mark the uh, talks that I would like to attend. And yours one was like, I am not missing this because oh. uh, the topic was very interesting and also in the realm of my interests as mm-hmm. well. And that, you know, the sort of, the packed room, it kind of signifies that, yes, the people with the IAs are really interested in the topic because, you know, no one is rushing out because usually you see, you know, <laughs> as the conference ends, people tend to depart, you know, they have other commitments. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people stayed back and attended. And I think there were so many questions not just okay uh, the, the questions were you stimulated uh, mm-hmm. the discussions that people were like actually asking good questions yeah right it was not like methodological question why mm-hmm. did you do this i right. know <laughs> it, it yeah. was like the big everyone was asking very big questions and i was like oh my god you know mm-hmm. 
this is a very very good uh i was really impressed uh with your presentation and mm. yeah well thank you uh, i really hope you're doing great things with it now oh well, i appreciate it it's very kind words that uh you extended you know i, I was i did feel somewhat fortunate i thought it's a 50 50 chance maybe people will just rush out and i only have to present to like the people i carpooled with and that'll be great you know less stressful and then the other side of me was like, well, maybe, you know, if more people are there, then it makes the paper stronger because you get more feedback. But to the extent it was successful, you know, I, I work hard, I, I would like to think anyway, but, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants as, as we all do. Dissertation advisor, Ravi Aron, a kindling for the idea uh, came from a guy named Marshall Van Alstyne up in Boston. Spoiler alert, we're trying to get him on this for this series as well. So you talk about people who are quote unquote more accomplished. We're just junior in our career, so we don't have ext extremely long publication records. And I actually, I question whether that's a signal of uh, intellectual contributions anymore. Um, perhaps it still is in, in information systems, but in academia more broadly, I have, I have my doubts. I'm not speaking for Syed, but I have my doubts. Yeah. All right, so Syed, there's a couple questions that I'm, I'm going to try and tee up for all of our guests. I'm going to start with the, the thing that is most simple, but not easy to answer. What is fake news? Yes, and I think that's something... Uh, we discussed right after your presentation, we can't define it. There is, frankly, no way to define what is fake news. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm quite sure that you're not asking me to define the academic definition of fake news that they're in papers. You know, <laughs> those are, uh, those, those, those definitions are like, I like because it's a good way to conceptualize, right? There, are, uh, but the way I see it, or the way I kind of conceptualize it so I can study it mm -hmm. is there are two dimensions of okay. fake news. One is the sort of the objectivity or like, you know, how much facts do you have mm -hmm. in the news, right? Mm -hmm. And the level of the amount of facts that's verifiable, right? Okay. And I don't see as a dichotomous it's on a continuum okay right so there is a way to package a news where you have facts you have facts Fair. and also mixed with fiction mm. right you can have that mm -hmm. so that, that i see that as a continuum and then uh, another dimension is the deception mm. the deception element to it okay. right so you can have facts as well as mixed with deceptions you only have facts no fiction mm -hmm. but the way you package the facts is to uh deceive the reader mm. so even that deception element i see that as a on a, on a continuum right okay. and uh again that's just way for me to study it mm, right, right. Yeah, you have to uh, simplify it before you can study it. Agreed. Before, so that's a lot of assumption, a lot of simplification. And, you know, for me, it's not, uh, the problem is not defining fake news. The problem is defining news. Mm, okay. What is news? Yes. So this is, that's kind of where the cliffhanger we left off at, at the end of the conference. And I want to get your thoughts on that, because I've studied much more of kind of game theory and construct validity, data-driven ways to try and get construct validity around fake news particularly, whereas you have a much more, I would say, um, you have a wider kind of frame for this and and you're, you're looking at, okay, well, fake, 
and versus news. Like clearly, we're implying a distinction; otherwise, we'd use the same term. Um, and and there's good reasons to. We can talk about some of the leading researchers. They talk about the importance of being able to account for both. Um, there are many challenges with defining this. Um, there's also a diversity of definitions in the literature. So I wonder, I have two questions, and you can take these in either order. One is, how appropriate do you think it is for people to make claims about fake news research findings or um, you know, kind of pound their chest about research and fake news when there's not even agreement among quote unquote experts you know the people doing the primary research about what constitutes fake news so that's one question um and then two and by the way you're more i know that you're going on the job market in academia you're more than welcome to like give like plead the fifth i won't hold that against you okay i think that's, that's an honest response back to your deception yeah. point um the the second question is I'm with you on the 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 degree of factuality of news. Like there, that's clearly some component of what people talk about when they mean fake news. And your other point, which is deception, this deals with like the intentionality of the author. That is something that is common generally, but not universal to the different definitions people will use for fake news. And so the second question I have is if I give you a piece of news, I know how you could go about well, I think I know about how you could go about getting a measure of objectivity. How can you about go about getting a measure of deception? So again, the two questions are, what would you say about researchers making grand claims when we have a lack of convergence on what fake news is? And the second is, um, how would you measure deception in an article, one of your primary dimensions for how you study fake news? So I'll start with the first question, mm -hmm. right? like people making grand claims or mm -hmm. uh, researchers making grand claims. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, the papers, the good papers that I follow or the, you know, the big scholars that I've spoken to who are into the fake news here. Mm -hmm. I believe based on my experience of speaking to them is they know that, you know, their findings are limited. Mm -hmm. by the context, limited even by the measurements they have used. So uh, I would say, like, I don't think anyone can make grand claims about uh, about research on fake news, at least in the, even in, like, um, so there was this uh, three series of articles published recently in Science, mm -hmm. and it's all related to fake news and misconsumption and political polarization mm -hmm. and they actually collaborated with uh, Facebook so Facebook actually opened uh, their platform to researchers it's one of their transparency initiative so this is like a big research team that uh, did like you know field experiments uh, survey and collected uh, real data mm -hmm. uh, like uh, real engagement data from mm -hmm. Facebook and even they don't claim because they they actually do a field experiment real facebook users they actually get uh the treatment so actually so that's probably the best way to establish causality right yeah and even they don't claim that you mm -hmm. know if you read their uh so they don't claim that and i think all of us uh we should not be doing that if if uh 
I know that, you know, whatever fake news research I'm doing is extremely limited by the context. Mm -hmm. And we just need to do cumulative work and hopefully someday through enough engagement with industry and more importantly, the social media platforms and uh, the news media, maybe we can find a solution. And this is not something that only IAS scholars can do. It requires a concerted effort from all disciplines, right? So I, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced if anyone tries to make grand claims. Same. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, It's a very honest answer. I think there's a lot of insight and wisdom there. Some people would probably contend with, well, you know, we're doing these very rigorous, we're taking these very rigorous techniques to a problem. So we should be able to say more than someone who hasn't. Mm, I'm, somewhat sympathetic to that argument. But again, I, I have this very kind of large weight on the context dependency and the way people operationalize their studies. You know, a field experiment with a platform is certainly better than many techniques, to be sure. But, you know, I, I have, and we'll talk more today and, and with some other guests about this problem, because I don't want to put the entire weight of answering this question on mm-hmm. you. Um, I mean, though I did, just did, it's good to get your informed opinion on it. Okay, so the idea that it's provisional knowledge, as all science is. Maybe this is something we can talk about in a minute, because I do want to give you a chance to answer the other question. But the idea that fake news, you can do some research and make some claims is not offensive to me. What is offensive to me is those who use the fact that they've conducted research of some varying quality to then advocate for large-scale social prescriptions as a singular point of authority or as a point of authority from a very small index of like-minded individuals. And that, I think, instills distrust, which makes the quote-unquote fake news problem worse. Because it's as if you have an intervention, you have a series of proposed interventions that now the populace is a substantial portion of the populace, not always the same portion, but many people have been inoculated such that that intervention will not be effective in the real world. In a lab experiment, perhaps it's different. I totally agree with you on that. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, every paper has a limitation section, right? Yep. And before making any, like, overarching policy uh, suggestions or, you know, making prescriptions Mm -hmm. on what uh, the society should do, what social media platforms should do, or what rule or regulations Mm -hmm. we can have, we need to look at what are the limitations of the study itself, right? Right. Yeah. And there has to be multiple studies to actually validate the findings, you know, because it's so context-specific. It's so Mm -hmm. context-specific. Right. Like, I'll just give you one example. Uh, and my paper has not been published yet. I'll probably be sending it out for review. But there's something I did uh, for my, uh, this is a fake news uh, mm-hmm. paper. And uh, one thing that I was surprised uh, from reading the political science research articles is that when individuals engage in like let's say confirmation bias or you know motivated reasoning as mm-hmm. we say uh the driving factor is their attitude towards that issue so we often uh concept we often take control we often control for their ideology political ideology but we don't actually 
capture or not a lot of studies capture okay you know you can have varying attitude towards different issues like let's say for example you might have a very strong position on climate change mm -hmm. but you know we cannot say that okay all all people from the right has this attitude towards climate change sure. right that's a generalization that we make uh, but those uh, the, the attitudes itself like you know it's very issue specific and sometimes i've seen papers do not control for that mm -hmm. because uh, there's also two sides to that attitude which mm -hmm. also has not been as well explored is so there's these two elements of attitude towards the topic one is called like how one is like the polarity of it like mm -hmm. how how much uh, how on the how extreme you are mm -hmm. and then the other part is the strength like how how much uh, how convinced are you about that position right sure so let's say you can have a very neutral position on climate change mm -hmm. but your 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 position is very strong mm -hmm. right yeah. so that is different than someone who is neutral but probably they don't feel as strongly about mm -hmm. that yeah right so these are things that we often uh, sometimes depending on the context we need to control for we need to or also we need to see how our interventions are mm -hmm. conditioned by these factors so yeah. uh that's just one example where uh where i have found those things to be quite important mm -hmm. and 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 there is like uh political in 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 psychology and political science there's literature in from 90, 90s and 2000s that have shown uh, that yes, that matters a lot. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, the study of attitudes. I mean, even in IS, which is a relatively new field, and I'll save my diatribe for why I don't think IS is a singular discipline, but so much as like a, a meta context for studies in the 21st century for another day. But you know, even in IS, you know, it's been decades where attitudes generally have been studied, and so the idea that there's different facets of of what composes an attitude or what underpins an attitude seems eminently reasonable and if and i agree if you just measure at have a crude measure of political affiliation that's not ideal even if you have a measure of attitude of belief without having the strength of belief that's also less ideal and so as we try and tease these things apart that's important i agree with you so for people who hate academic jargon you know i mean we we kind of throw certain words around and they might not appreciate kind of what we mean so when you say context everything is context you know um not, you're not saying everything is context, but you say so much in the study of news and fake news depends on the context. What do you mean by that? So uh, one simple example is what type of articles are you giving? So let's say I'm uh, I'm talking about an experiment, right? Okay. So uh, the context could be what topic of articles are you giving them, right? Hmm. So like that's why that attitude about the issue so if, if you're giving them only articles about climate change mm -hmm. then maybe it's good to capture how they feel about climate change mm -hmm. before you actually show them those articles mm -hmm. and then the presentation of the articles the presentation format right are you if you're giving only headlines versus you're giving them headlines and pictures and maybe some text does that has anything to do with how people respond right if you're uh, i understand there are a lot of studies have done headlines right 
but uh, in a in a in a social media platform along with headlines you do get some snippets of text you also get a picture and sometimes if it's shared by someone else you get some commentary right yeah. right so the the source is coming from whether it's a it's from a friend mm -hmm. right it's someone you trust let's say i trust your opinion mm -hmm. and you shared something and I probably will not care what the source is. I'll at least look at the article and make my opinion mm -hmm. about it, right? So I think that's just one example of what I mean by context. I mean, a lot of papers, a lot of good papers do a very good job of explaining mm -hmm. what the contexts are and how their findings are limited mm -hmm. by these conditions. Mm -hmm. And we, we try to make it as applicable or have more external valid i'm again using a jargon Define. but uh, uh but the idea is you know we we want we want to make it more generalizable so that right. our findings can be applicable mm -hmm. but it's not possible to implement that in single studies we know like you have uh you have design if you have design studies mm -hmm. it's very difficult uh, to say that okay, my findings apply for everything in fact. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Yeah. I need to make it manageable and then you know, brick by brick, I'll have to put the pieces together. It's like, you know, you you get one piece of knowledge and then you get another piece and you mm -hmm. glue them together. And same like what other people are doing. You glue everything together and then you can probably make some generalizable uh suggestions. No, I agree. Uh, you kind of you know, you plant trees and then you can zoom out. And if you've planted enough trees, you and your colleagues and people from different disciplines and think pieces from outside the academy, you can zoom out and then you say, okay, there is kind of a forest here and we kind of see a pattern. And I'm with you. And IS, for the record, uh, this is neither your fault nor mine. They should prioritize replication um, where they can, right? And understand certain, especially in earlier in IS, that wasn't even remotely feasible. But as we know, social science broadly in certain segments very much suffer from uh, replication issues. They're, you know, the top journals, they've got replication rates between, you know, one in four and one in two. That's, that's not science, really. I mean, that's at best, at best, that's publishing of spurious findings um, that align with the reviewers and editors predispositions at the time of review. That is the best case scenario. Um, Again, speaking for myself, not Syed. Syed wants a job in academia. Um, <laughs> the, um, no, uh, I mean, we, we kind of hear, you know, that is the system is not perfect, right? Sure. And hopefully uh, with time, we can fix it. But yeah, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't dealt with the big uh, journals, MISQ, mm -hmm. ISR yet. So, but I'll be submitting soon. So... Uh, I'll, I'll see how things are dealt, but I know how difficult it can be to mm -hmm. navigate uh, the journals. And we just have to do our, you know, put our best forward. And mm -hmm. hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, the findings will stand yeah. uh, the test of time. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned about the replication. So we do have like a AIS transaction of replication research. There is a journal. But I think we also need to do more than just maybe, you know, maybe one of the big journals 
mm. may need to encourage where you can do a series of replications. Let's mm-hmm. say you are doing a series of replication of fake news research. Right. And put the pieces together. You just don't do replication, but you extend them. Mm-hmm. Right. You are uh, applying what other people have done. Yep. And you see what has worked, what doesn't work, and put the pieces together and make suggestions. Mm-hmm. And at, at least in, in the fake news, that would make sense. Yes, not, yeah. I can't speak for other uh, domain. Yeah, that's but, okay. That's the only issue we're tackling right now, um, or you know, making a small contribution to anyway. Um, yeah, so okay, I'm with you. All right, and again, best of luck with the, the submissions coming forward. It's the choreography you go through as an academic uh, to the extent whether other people should care about the inner workings of academia conversation for another day. But hopefully our academic friends will appreciate that we had this kind of aside. So I didn't want to let you off the hook too quickly because I did ask you how you measure deception. Um, And so enlighten me, please. Yes. Uh, So deception, I have so I have only studied uh, designed or like conceptually design mm-hmm. and put forth uh, ideas together. We did some with pilot data. So basically, uh, I'm doing, I'm applying text analytics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably one way to uh, identify deception. Uh, so, can I ask one quick question there? Because text analytics can mean a lot of different things. So are you doing something like you're developing a predictive score for how deceptive this is going to be based on word inventories that are associated with deception? Yes. So something, uh, something along, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it. Something along the lines of like Luke, where you have made a dictionary of, okay, these words or these objective adjectives represent uh factual information or to describe uh more uh factual incidents whereas mm-hmm. these are more uh flimsy words okay which are more likely to be used for deception now i haven't validated it okay but that's an idea okay. uh, of how to quantify because it. it's very it's so subjective it's right so we need to take some have some leeway mm-hmm. to uh, uh to operationalize that mm-hmm. uh, but uh, w- one way it would be that to mm-hmm. use uh text analysis another would be where you actually have a series of experts rate a few articles mm-hmm. how deceptive they are right and then you can also use uh like something like Amazon MTurk or other crowdsource platforms where you actually hire experts, not the regular survey takers, but the experts, you train them on how to identify deception. You ask them to rate uh, articles on deceptivity, and maybe then you uh, train a predictive model to predict deception. Okay. That would, that would be another approach. Okay. These are uh, very similar to what people, uh, uh, this is nothing, uh, this is not groundbreaking because people have applied similar techniques in other domains. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You borrow methodologies. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a tool that provides you the potential anyway to unlock some new insight that I have no issue with that. I mean, yeah. we're not, um, computer science, uh, yeah. researchers developing a new algorithm, for example, uh, right. we want to appropriate yeah. 
and have some good conceptual logic that allows for the appropriation to map onto the context of our study. You're speaking yeah. to the choir on that. I appreciate the choir on that one, man. I'm I'm all about having a, a wide but robust methodological tool belt. Um, I think that is the path forward for credible research in academia and industry. Um, yeah. So, okay. Have you read the paper? And by the way, I'm when you hear me typing, because unfortunately I'm an amateur podcaster, so people are going to hear the keys go in the background. What I'm typing is things that I want to make sure that I include in the episode artifact. So you mentioned some a series of papers in science. I'm going to make sure those are included. I have an Excel sheet with all the definitions I've come across in academia for fake news. That kind of stuff is going to be included. But okay. when you're talking about uh, this text analytics, of, hey, these words tend to be associated with, again, not universal law, but they tend to be associated with factual statements, whereas these tend to be associated with more loose statements. That seems interesting to me. It kind of appeals to the quant side of me. Um, the expert rating of things, I don't know, because I, I take a very skeptical lens of, I genuinely do believe in expertise. I worry that expertise um, that is designated as opposed to earned is a way that the actual findings of fake news research and the actual, and we'll talk about this as we go on, the civic importance of a high quality news diet by just designating people as experts independent of their actual claims to expertise, you can corrupt this system, not overnight, but over a very short course of time. And then you, you've, to borrow an adage, you've poisoned the well, because then people always are just going to be like, well, you did this, or people could, even if it's irrational, maybe they should always be, they should have a Bayesian approach, always have being willing to update, but they will, you know, this very salient negativity or negative thing that happened will be more salient than any string of small positive victories that you can put forward. So, so the expert rating thing, I'm a little less sold on, but this gives us an opportunity to talk about one of the papers in fake news. Are you familiar with um, David Rand and Gordon Pennycook? Yeah. Okay. Probably obvious uh, for all everyone who's like listening, who is aware of the fake news literature, like they're the two most prolific, but I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. Did you read the Rand and Allen article? I believe she's his PhD student. I could be wrong, but they're co-authors on a couple of papers about kind of like wisdom of the crowd and crowdsource fact checks versus expert source fact checks. Yes. Is this i I'm trying to recall. There was a paper in MISQ that mm -hmm. actually delved into crowd intelligence. In my head, the crowd intelligence paper was an MISQ, but that's not the paper you are talking about. No, right? these they're they're researchers from psychology, but actually we can tie these two together because probably the maybe the paper you're talking about is a research note by a couple of authors who are from Harvard Business School. By the way, all these people have been invited on the podcast. So like to the extent that I have dozens of listeners who can publicly shame them into coming on, like I want to talk <laughs> about their ideas. Uh, that was something like uh, they were trying to measure bias and slant in Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica. And they were, you know, they were essentially data mining those sources and trying to come up with measures of political bias directionally, but also in terms of magnitude. Um, is that the paper that you remember? Uh, no. no, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, well, uh, but it sounds very fascinating, you know? Okay. Kind of the synthesis of these articles and feel free to caveat this with anything that, that you're bringing to the table that, that I'm unaware of or haven't touched. The synthesis of these articles is that there are differences between expert source versus crowdsourced assessments or provisions of information. Small caveat, I said I believe in genuine expertise. I'm not particularly interested in like crowdsourced 
instructions on how to perform open heart surgery. Okay. Like for short, I am interested in crowdsourced interventions that speak to a pluralistic civic body. I don't think you get to just anoint, you know, philosopher Kings that has a tendency towards tyranny. But in any case, the, the crowdsourced thing, the Wikipedia article, what they found was that, yeah, there was discrepancies between Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica, which by the way, I suspect have diminished given Wikipedia's new editorial norms. But the the coolest two findings for me were that the number of revisions on a Wikipedia article reduced the extent of political bias, which was cool because it's kind of like the battling out of ideas. By the way, they focused on contested knowledge. So this is areas for which there's no single canonical way to describe what's happening. So this would be something like the death tax versus a wealth tax, uh, illegal immigration versus undocumented citizens or undocumented peoples. So that kind of stuff. And so what they found is when they looked at the Wikipedia articles, that this process of revision attenuated the bias. And they also found that though Wikipedia articles were more biased overall, they also had, they were much longer. And that on a per word basis, they were actually less biased than the expert articles, which was, now the effect size was somewhat small um, for some topics, less so for others. So that was cool. And then the Jennifer Allen and, and Rand paper, and I, I apologize, I'm sure that they have other co-authors, I'm just forgetting. They said essentially something like, you can get pretty high convergence between crowdsourced ratings and expert sourced ratings on quote unquote fake news. The way they always, op well, not always, but often operationalize fake news is they use ground truth as a set of fact checks. You can talk about issues with that, why you might do that, why you might not do that. But, but in effect, what they found was, okay, there's a couple of findings. Um, we can get relatively good convergence with fact checkers in general. Uh, it's less good if you look at just Republican or conservative users, I forget the term they use, but it's still like a, you know, there's still correlate, a positive correlation there, less strong. You know, they didn't say this, but one insight you might take away from this is, okay, well, we don't necessarily have to rely on like singular authoritative bodies to evaluate all information. You know, you can, you can kick this to the crowd maybe a bit and, and still have to the extent fact checks are useful, um, relatively similar results. So those are kind of the things I was thinking about. So when you talk about potential text analytics for the deception element, and we move away from like the the word list, like right, the word banks essentially to have some score, and you talk about article evaluations, what's the motivation for having an expert as opposed to just opening up to a general MTurk user base, for example? Well, uh, the the idea is like to train a model mm -hmm. right uh you need to have and and people who are co who are like reading the articles they need mm -hmm. to understand what deception is right okay. and that's where the idea is it's not like um we'll be recruiting just experts but people who can uh, who can be trained so i haven't worked out okay uh, uh okay what's the criteria for mm. inclusion right who am i trying to get included but the idea is who can i train right. to understand deception yes okay because so, it's good. not uh, feasible for a few of us to code hundreds of articles yep right mm -hmm. and so that's the idea like who who can i train mm -hmm. and then based on those training who can help us it's just like the qualitative approach right mm -hmm. you know how qualitative studies have been done uh, but you know, just taking a more crowd crowdsourcing, yeah. crowdsourcing uh, that, and where you uh, 
train some people to be experts on understanding what deception is. Give them solid examples. Right? Okay. That is interesting. Okay. So I'm way more open to that. I think that's, that's uh, for whatever it's worth. Like, I mean, like you could just like be like, that guy's crazy when we get off of here, but that version of expertise, I think is relevant for the domain, right? This is not, I've anointed some, I'm recruiting from an editorial board at this newspaper or this broadcasting organization or, or a collection of them. And those will be my experts because they have a, a title that would indicate as such independent of whether they do or don't live up to that title. I'm making no claims at this present moment. But what you're saying is, no, no, we want we want people who have the ability to learn to detect deception. And then we want to essentially have our entire rating body composed of individuals like that. So I'm with yes. you. Okay. So last question on this front. You're going to have to show them examples, right? Yeah. To discriminate between those who can detect a deception those who cannot yeah so to the extent you can what what does that look like i i'm i'm with you conceptually i totally get it i think it's good um now when you put the meat on the bows and i go in to do it you're handing them two articles what's going to be the difference between those two articles that will map onto deception how would you do that so uh ideally uh, like let's say we will have a group of uh, researchers who mm -hmm. understand deception mm -hmm. and we will independently code few articles. Okay. We compare our coding and discuss about them mm -hmm. and based on what we have coded and deliberated a lot and spend a lot of time in picking it out, like, mm -hmm. you know, why is this deception and why mm -hmm. is this not deception? Mm -hmm. So we can use those examples to actually it's not like something that okay i feel this is deception and mm -hmm. i'm just gonna well no uh it it should be a collaborative approach first mm -hmm. among researchers and then you train uh you make it you, you make the knowledge palette somewhat palatable to a more uh not the not the general but somewhere in the middle like mm -hmm. people who, who can who can understand uh the bits and pieces of, okay this feels like deception this doesn't feel like deception and it's a again this is uh i haven't this is something that i was very fascinated um years ago uh, a, a year ago mm -hmm. and i had thought about it i had uh even uh, presented a trio about it but you i'm not tackling uh fake news for for my dissertation right. Uh, right. i'm i'm looking at a similar problem so this idea is still on hold and i'm sure i'll be happy if you know uh if, if it's i'll be I'll, I'll be happy to get it i i know there'll be a lot of people who'll be sad if someone actually does it <laughs> but i'll be happy because i care more about the you know idea and see that okay if if, if it has currency and yeah. I, I i'm just interested to try it out i'm, yeah. not, I'm not i i cannot claim that it'll work but uh, conceptually based on the literature I have read and based on some literature on deception and literature on fake news, to me, it's, uh, it seemed a bit logical. And, and also it, uh, like, you know, I mean, I know we're researchers and we need to limit or separate ourselves, uh, from, from our own biases and while we're doing research. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, we, uh, that's, 
regarding any 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 polarized issue right but we can have an we can have a opinion let's say about mm -hmm. okay what approach we feel better right yeah, i'm pretty sure you have an opinion of okay how can we tackle fake news sure right sure. yeah and 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 so do i and my overarching uh like if you say it's it's my opinion mm -hmm. that uh like there are two ways if you actually see all the research in fake news on how to do how to combat fake news mm -hmm. more or less they can be classified along two dimensions one is uh the epistemic dimension another is the structural dimension right? okay and the structural dimension is where you fix the system right you mm -hmm. fi you fix the system you fix the input of news but that's very to me that's very dangerous mm -hmm. and even the that has been discussed in the literature you know that doesn't bode well for the future trajectory of how news is going to look if you're trying to uh, censor everything from the supply right and right. then the epistemic is where you kind of the whole idea is you empower people who are consuming the news you empower them in some way to do a better job and i'm more i have my opinion is that that's so that's that's definitely more difficult but also more sustainable if if we can if we can have interventions that actually helps people to consume news better mm -hmm. that uh, I'm, I'm all for that yeah that's my motivation uh primary motivation for these fake news and news research okay so this will give us a good way to pivot towards more ex to the domain that you you're studying, right? We talked about the fact that I'm very kind of focused on the fake news realm, but you're also focused on the, okay, it brings up the bigger question of, well, what is news? But before we get there, I just want to point out one thing. You talked about the epistemic versus the structural approach. Um, there's also a, perhaps this is a two by two, and you have a top down versus bottom up approach. And you can bin the different proposed interventions into one of those four quadrants. Um, there's there's going to be a strong correlation, I suspect, between the structural and top-down, kind of a little bit by construction, but also by the the leverage points where there would be intervention. Um, you know, you talk about what they, what some would say is quality control screening. I don't know if I believe that, but but you know, some people would say would make that argument. Um, but some sort of screening on the front end, or some sort of dial turning or lever throwing on the amplification side this whole freedom of speech not freedom of breach thing which people you know uh is gaining popularity in various circles um you do wonder about the listener's right to hear but the next part about that is i also agree i think that you know you talk about the epistemic approach and and to the extent i would you know i focus on the bottom up but the things where you empower users to be uh, more discerning and to in a way that you preserve pluralism you allow for emergent news players uh, people with just you know a gopro or an iphone or an android right and they go to some protest and they can report right there on the ground there's no overarching bureaucratic structure that's screening their stuff um, there's no editorial board necessarily not that those things are serve no purpose but they they certainly do but in any case i'm very interested in those potential solutions as well that's one of the things I think is most interesting about the implications of some of Rand and Pennycook's work. You know, they talk about the fact that perhaps people have overstated the role of confirmation bias. To be sure, 
you know, we're more likely to believe news that confirms what we believe already, right? But at the same time, they talk about this hedonic engagement for many people, or at least not a very mindful engagement. And they talk about, well, cognitive reflection. Like if you can be in a cognitively reflective state while using social media, you greatly reduce the ability of someone to deceive you, to go back to your deception point. You, It's like you become a better BS detecting instrument as a person. And it's like, well, that's probably, there, there may be system level things you can do to help that. But the goal is not to suppress information. The goal is to empower the user. And those are different paradigms meaningfully. And that's where, you know, why some of the interventions don't seem to work because mm -hmm. it's so difficult. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, something called hedonic. Uh, mm -hmm. the, I mean, that has been mentioned in a lot of literature. That's mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the core uh, the core problem. And sorry, I'm trying to, because you mentioned that, I just uh, trying to tie something that I'm looking into in my yeah. research is uh, like how, what do you think of news as a product? What type of if you if you had to classify news as a product, what would that be? Oh, you're flipping the table. Ooh, yeah. buddy. Okay, so let me not make too big a fool of myself. Well, you know, if I do, it's okay. I'm actually not that concerned about it. But let's. Um, I've got a paper that is. It actually it's the one you've seen. Um, but it's the yeah. the part you don't focus on really during a you know conference presentation where you're trying to develop the logic of your paper. Um, yeah. And so we talk about it from an information economics point of view, and we contrast, you know, physical goods to information. We, by the way, we're definitely not the first people to do this, like not even remotely. But there are important dimensions along which information goods differ from many physical goods. And I would consider news to be an information good. Um, I think I, I think that's pretty inarguable. Um, though I'd be happy, you know, if you can convince me otherwise, that'd be you know fascinating. And so we we look at the, you know, very crudely, we look at the production, the distribution slash propagation, the use and consumption, intermediaries, externalities. And because we were studying information warranties, we also look at the warranty mechanism. So we look at these, we compare them across these six dimensions. So again, very quickly, because it's not the central focus of the paper, but it's enough to get us to the point of we can bring an economic game, we can bring a game theory model to this problem. And we're for this paper, we're looking as Syed was. Quick to point out uh, at the conference, we're looking at a, you know, a sliver of fake news, the, and this is the fake news that is uh, knowably true or false at the time of production, that has economic implications. So, like those, that's greatly constraining what we can say. But we think that for that type of news, this model might be informative. So, you asked me what do I think about fake news as a product, or I'm sorry, news as a product. News um, as a product. Yeah, so yes, I would say it's an information good. Do you want me to say more than that? No, no. I just wanted to hear your yeah. uh, your take on it because I I I I remember you had conceptualized, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I just want to give it back. But information goods, right? That's mm -hmm. a, a makes perfect sense, mm. right? That makes perfect sense. And it it and like you know, people have used different terms in mm -hmm. the literature. But it gets the same part. Like one of the term is like the it's a it's a credence good, because uh, uh, like for example, uh, you consume news out of trust, right? You mm. don't know, you can never know 
but the quality is you just trust the quality is good right so that's why some say that it's a credit is good okay and uh and the more i dig deeper it's not from the literature but it's i had done some qualitative interviews and sort of just um talk to people on how they consume news and again i'm talking about news only on social media because uh, okay. if i remember correctly that your your information good uh, your conceptualization of information what good was uh, bounded by the context I'm, I'm again using the word context yeah, yeah it's okay is that is the economic information is the uh yeah the financial it has some it has uh economic implications yeah yeah economic implications right mm -hmm. so i'm talking about just everything that someone sees or someone perceives it to be news on so mm -hmm. uh, i'll use social media as an extreme case sure like you know everything that you see at on social media so uh it's to me it seems like okay is this an experienced product okay oh that's interesting like um because you say that you know that you get hedonic enjoyment out of it right mm -hmm. and hedonic uh, it's predominantly associated with experienced goods and when you are on social media for you it's an experience or i mean for a for a general population mm -hmm. they get they get a hedonic uh, value out of it mm -hmm. one can claim and news is just a part of it there are a lot of other content and that's where also the, right. the the problem is that news is intermixed with so many other type of contexts mm -hmm. uh, other type of contents that how do you know what news is like how do you capture okay how is news different than a funny cat video right? sure <laughs> how, how how are news competing with that right and how do you study that so i i'm I'm trying to open up something mm -hmm. like trying to study okay what does that mean yeah right what type of product is it mm. and looking at the va the value people get out of so when you talk about experienced product there's this two dimension utilitarian value and the hedonic value mm -hmm. right there are other dimensions but these two uh it tends to capture the broad values people get out of an experience mm -hmm. so i'm uh, i'm trying to get at that like what value does news give to you what gotcha. value does time someone spends on news what do they get from it that's a that's a really good question and it's probably different for different people i would imagine maybe and you're right i do think there's probably some differences between those who primarily get their news through social media versus other sources so I hear my advisor in, in my head, and we'll get into this because this relates to your research on news diets and that kind of stuff. Um, I had mentioned, hey, I try and treat very crudely. You know, I'm not managing it like I'd manage a monetary portfolio, but I try and treat my news diet like a like an information portfolio. And so what does that mean? It's like, well, okay, well, I want to make sure I diversify so I'm not over leveraged on any single or correlated source or sources. So I do think that there's a, you know, you talked about the utilitarian versus hedonic. How much do I, how useful is it to me versus how much do I enjoy it? Um, 
there are people that I, I literally have a Twitter or an X list, I guess, at this point called information portfolio. It's 300 members long. And there are people on there, not because I think that they're the sharpest minds, but because I appreciate how they talk about things. And the question you're asking is like, how do we properly conceptualize news products? It's probably an easy, easier question for the director at the New York Times, because like they have to map that on to subscriptions, right? Or ad sales. But for researchers trying to study this in, you know, kind of a conceptual map or a nomological network or whatever term we prefer, it's a really hard question. And I don't think I have a good answer for you. I couldn't answer it probably for myself, really. I think that I view news as an information good and that I view news as that which is helps keep you informed for either action you'll take in the world or because it satisfies some uh, desire to know. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, that's the ideal definition of news, I would say. Right. If if we lived in an ideal world of news production, mm-hmm. uh, that's the that's the desirable way. And I hope people. I mean, if everyone cannot uh, cannot express it like you, but people who are good consumers of news probably would think of news as an information good. Yeah, yeah, and I think people people. My impression is that the general populace is more wise than perhaps they're given credit for by people with advanced degrees sometimes. And I, you know, that's, I don't want to overgeneralize, but you know, there's this perception anyway. And I think people can, we have some evolved heuristics that are pretty good. You know, they survived <laughs> many tens of thousands of years and, or, you know, over the course of you know evolutionary history, um, recent evolutionary history. And, you know, they've helped us navigate more tumultuous times than we are now, both in the natural world as well as the, uh, you know, the world of kinetic interface between peoples. So, I think that I'm much more comfortable with saying something like, "Well, if someone can say it poetically, great. But if they can't say it poetically, but they still know it in their bones, that's also good." Yeah. Okay. So for your research, we talked about news. Um, we had had a brief, you know chat beforehand uh, to talk about you know the goings on in life and that kind of thing. So can you tell me one, just navigate me from, you said you originally had some interest in fake news and then what brought you to the broader news question overall, and then maybe give us like one or two examples of the types of problems that you think, okay, these are on my plate and I'll have something important to say about them in the next, either now or in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. Well, yeah, that's a, uh, I don't know about the timeline, but, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, for for fake news, uh, I mean, you know, I was a young PhD student, mm-hmm. and I tried to uh, mostly study. Okay, what can we do about it? Right. What interventions can we look into? Mm-hmm. And uh, like for my second in my when I was in, almost in third year, uh, I was sparked uh, by this article in. I'm trying to remember, was it Harvard, HBR, or or, or an article on the Wall Street Journal? But they uh, referenced uh, academic work is mm-hmm. this concept of uh, fast and frugal heuristics, right? So if you read uh, fake newspapers, mm-hmm. you see like, okay, why heuristics is 
problematic, mm-hmm. right? On why people fall for fake news. And then uh, while I was reading this article, uh, they talk about this concept of uh, fast and frugal heuristics where you actually uh, train people to apply heuristics, but to be more accurate and more efficient. Okay. And there has been, uh, and this is not, uh, uh, the fast and frugal heuristics, the concept is not in news per se. Uh, there is, I'm trying to actually remember uh, the name of the institute in Germany. The scientist is, it's difficult for me to pronounce his name, uh, Gisenhenger. Okay. So they actually, so he has been doing this, he has a lot of publications on mm-hmm. fast and frugal here. Uh, heuristics where he'll he looked at okay um you know if you make managerial decisions uh how can uh how can you apply fast and frequent heuristics and he compared those to predictive models and always found that when you actually apply fast and frugal heuristics they tend to be as accurate as more complex predictive models hmm. and also obviously more efficient right Mm -hmm. and that has been uh, so one of the uh i i I read about that and i thought okay how can we twist this for fake news Mm -hmm. and there are there was one article that looked into training high school students on how to on how to just do search google search like if they see a news how do you do a Google search and how do you pick out signals, mm-hmm. uh, different signals to find, okay, does this uh, new, is this news reliable? Is this news trustworthy? Okay. Right. And they train them uh, over, uh, over a few months. And then after that, they did that experiment and it actually, they found that people who, the students who actually got the training, they got better at detecting fake news, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I was like, okay, how can this come into play in a, in a social media context where you don't have one month to train people, right? Okay. How can you nudge them, right? So I'm still finalizing the manuscript. And uh, what we did was we designed sort of a simple decision tree mm-hmm. that can help you look at signals like okay uh, there are some sometimes there are uh, these signals that shows you okay is this uh, picture photoshopped right mm. or does this la- look at the uh, some of the uh, some the news logos right those can be copied and how to look closely mm-hmm. into the name of the source right sometimes the sources look very similar to a credible news mm-hmm. source. Uh, so very simple, uh, tra- very simple nudges, I would say, or very simple tra- information mm-hmm. on on how to apply uh, those techniques. And we we did that on an online platform, run some experiments, and I I just need to do more studies to validate that. But okay. so far, the initial study we did. We did find that people who actually got who got the treatment mm-hmm. uh, did better at identifying 
uh, fake news, mm-hmm. even after controlling for their confirmation bias. Sure. Great. Awesome. Yeah, but again, uh, as I had, you know, told you earlier mm-hmm. that our findings are limited by context. Sure. And we need to uh, do robustness mm-hmm. and see where 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 they stand. That's actually really interesting. I'll be sure to include a, a link to this research body in the artifact. The yeah, I really like this idea of fast and frugal. Um, the inventory for I didn't for right. You had to provide some set of fake news, some set of real news. And I don't want to take us backwards in our conversation, but I'm just I'm curious where that those bodies, those repositories came from. So I actually uh, I wanted to limit it to a topic. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to uh, some reports on like what are the most polarizing issues mm-hmm. in the United States, mm-hmm. and I picked one of them. Okay, and I searched news articles mm-hmm. on. Uh, like I co- collected a bunch of news articles and mm-hmm. uh, there are platforms like AdFonts, Media, NewsGuard, they read the sources. Mm-hmm. I know there are criticism against them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but, I, I, but that's a one way to start. And mm-hmm. then I have other people who are looking at, I have other PhD students mm-hmm. who are either uh, have, who either have some experience of fake news or mm-hmm. You know, as a PhD student, we can inform them what we're trying to achieve. And I have a few students who read those articles okay. on how biased they are, how reliable they are. And what I did was I created this mixed pool of biased articles. And also, let's say uh, I have news on the right mm-hmm. that are right-leaning. And so there will be three articles of one that's reliable, one that's not as reliable, and one that's less reliable, right? Okay. So that way, to keep the pool balanced, I, I try to balance it by reliability and bias. Okay. And the reli- reliability came from like an assessment from like NewsGuard, is that right? Or was uh, this derived? Along, along with, uh, yes, I, I use those data along with uh, rating by experts. Okay. By experts, I mean the PhD students. Your peers, yeah. In, in the, independently. Right, you know, of course. I didn't give them the okay. reliability test. It's not I, perfect, but it's uh, just we have to... But uh, the alternative the is not to study the problem, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I appreciate that you're... You know, I mean, that's a lot. I, can, I know that was a lot of work. Kudos on that. Uh, the other thing, I had a professor tell me at one point, it looks... I was trying to make a case for why I wanted to study fake news. And they go, yeah, it's really interesting, but it seems like it's too immature of a phenomenon to study. And I thought, well, yeah, I actually do agree with you. I, I think that's, it's too emergent. We we don't have our bearings, um, even on the fundamentals. But the issue is that not everyone believes that. And there are a lot of people who are already studying this. And we're over-representing their perspectives on the state of fake news and interventions and consequences all that kind of stuff because they they either do not have this concern about it being too new or they care more about something else and you know doing the research the authority that comes with being an expert on whatever information maladies fake news whatever you want to say okay well that's awesome um so that's cool and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, your kind of broader interest in 
in yes. news as a research topic. Yes. Uh, so now, like the example that I gave you, and I think I'll piggyback on what you were just discussing that, okay, fake news is not a mature topic. And this is something I mentioned earlier that the more I studied fake news and the more I read uh, the articles, mm -hmm. and then I look back at, I read like some of the older articles on what is news, mm -hmm. what does news mean for society? What's the purpose of news? Mm -hmm. And when I try to look at compare them, I felt like, okay, maybe we are missing something here. That is, the fake news is probably a symptom of a bigger problem. And the problem is the definition of news has changed. Mm. What is news? The fundamental nature of news have changed because we used to, I mean, again, I'm not, uh, there are journalistic norms of how news is to be created, right? You used mm -hmm. to have this uh institutions again not perfect but there were certain norms that they needed to follow certain values that they needed to uphold right mm -hmm. and then when the gets opened mm -hmm. uh it's good now a lot of people all of us have access to news mm -hmm. but then you don't have norms you don't have established practices then anything can be news right and if you look at like some of the, like there are so many definitions of news, but the uh, the simple one, but also sort of applies that it's an uh, account of an interesting event, right? Okay. Of a, of, of a recent interesting and significant event, right? Sure. It has to be, there is some sort of recency involved and also it has to be interesting and significant mm -hmm. and also it's an event, right? It's a reporting on, uh, on an event. Mm -hmm. And that is even like even when you have those norms and practices, right? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a it's it's a loose uh, definition. It anything can be news, and now we all know based on our experience <laughs> that anyone can create news. Mm -hmm. Any any content can be packed easily packaged as news, and right. when you look at uh, also, the financial model that have changed, right? Mm -hmm. So all you need to do is have clickbait. Mm. You make your news uh, newsworthy, and your you that has that gives you uh, the incentive to pursue clickbait and not real mm. news reporting and. Preview, like you know, before we had these digital platforms, uh, there were still some checks and balances going on, right? There were still uh, the newspapers could still be made accountable, and again, not perfect, of course, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, what What would you give as an example of account? No, I'm not asking for an incident, though you can use that if that's helpful. Yeah. But what would what would that accountability look like to you historically? Uh, so, um, one thing is readership, mm -hmm. right? If a newspaper is has historically, if they have, uh, they lose their creditworthiness, right? Their trustworthiness, people are not going to trust, and that's how the revenues are probably going to fall, and the readership is going to fall. 
uh, I'm not, I'm trying to remember if I can think of a specific example of how a news publisher mm -hmm. uh, had to face it, right? Yeah. Uh, but those, uh, the market mechanism was still there, right? But, yeah, at least it, theoretically, it, it, it was, right? I'm, yeah. uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the theoretical implications. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yes. But now, uh, it, it's a good thing, right? You want, I mean, conceptually, you want democratization of that process, right? You don't want um, people sitting in ivory tower just uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, like uh, you want democratization of uh, of the information you get, mm -hmm. but at the same time, who does the quality check? Right. Who becomes the custodian mm -hmm. of what information we get? Because we have limited capacity to process information, mm -hmm. bounded rationality, mm -hmm. right? Information overload. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that, uh, we are going, only going to consume news that we find appealing. And somehow all of us, even like I do it, I'm pretty sure you do it, we filter the type of, like for me, I use several tools to filter the news I get, mm -hmm. right? And that's biased by my preferences right now my preferences are i want to get a balanced news mm. right and it, individuals can filter or they are, or have no filter it's other people doing the filtering for them mm -hmm. right and so i, I think we're, we're in this period of transition yep. where we really need to look into what are the implications of just that how news have changed mm -hmm. or you know okay previously you know there were certain ways that news are, you know even the language was there was a certain structure to how the new how the news is structured mm -hmm. right so what type of topics that are being presented and how has that let's say how how the structure of news have changed right now if you if you want to compare and mm -hmm. what does that mean for how people consume news and uh, what implications it has. Like if you look at like historically, news uh, serves the purpose of agenda setting, priming. Like it says, okay, what's the national agenda for you, right? Or for your nation or for our nation. And uh, same thing globally, right? It says the agenda on going, moving forward. And it also, it, it, it nudges you to think certain to think about an issue in a certain way. Yeah, it raises now, the salience of it. Yes. And, uh, well, you can argue that it's good to have multiple perspectives now. We don't have a few concentrated institutions that are setting the agenda, mm -hmm. that are telling me what issues are more important. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. But then uh, we also need to have a system that works. Right, right. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm with you that there's a tension, not strictly linear, but it, some tension between an ungated information environment and a functional information environment. And I think you're right. I think that the fake news phenomenon, which we will not sufficiently bound here today, that likely what has happened and become more salient in the last, let's say, nine years is that people were saying, hey, there's some dysfunction in media. 
And as new players entered, there was increased ability to raise the salience about this dysfunction in the ongoing state, which then I think some people have used as a rationale to say, well, kind of to hell with it all. You know, it doesn't matter if it's some person with a cat profile picture, three followers on Twitter who made an account yesterday, or it comes from the Wall Street Journal. It's all information. It's like, yeah, it is all information to be sure, but it's at least data, let's say. Um, But the that doesn't mean you should weight them equally. But I don't view my role to tell you which to weight more. I think it's somewhat self-evident. I think you're right about the the credence perspective and and the idea that news organizations evolve a reputation, um, news personalities evolve a reputation, and that there has to be an accountability mechanism. Otherwise, if there's no accountability mechanism, if we're just ordaining an oligopoly of news content providers, there's no corrective. And we can say that we're doing quality control because we're not allowing for pluralism or whatever else, right? Um, you know, mis, dis, malinformation, whatever we want to say, propaganda. But is that really what you're doing? Or are you really just selecting for the type of information that you want? And the rubric, you use two different rubrics for that type of information. Um, and I'm talking more, again, at the systems or legal infrastructure level. At the individual level, there's filtering. You you mentioned filtering. And I told you I have this X list. Um, I also have an add-in in my browser for uh, Ground News. They use... Uh, all sides media bias Not rating. News. Yep. By the way, by the time this episode comes out, my previous episode with uh, the director of, I think it's, oh, it's like news rating and market, news ratings and marketing at All Sides will be out. So I spoke to her about media bias pretty extensively. She was uh, Julie Mastrini. She's very insightful. But I'm curious what, what other tool, it, to the extent you're willing to share, because this kind of I know actually we're running out of time, but this kind of brings me to the other big question I want to make sure I ask everyone uh, on this podcast, which is what advice would you give people for how to be more informed in the current media landscape? Um, it could be some of the tools you're using. It could be other tips or techniques you've taken from the literature or that you just find compelling. What would you say? Well, uh, I use two heuristics. Okay. Uh, one uh, One would be uh, if I read an article mm-hmm. about about especially something that uh, that is a polarizing topic, mm-hmm. I'll immediately search. Okay, what does that? Okay, let's say I read something that is probably more right leaning or left leaning. Mm-hmm. I'll search and I'll see. Okay, what does the news on the other side has to say about this? Mm-hmm. And I try to pick apart or see the commonalities and the differences mm-hmm. between the type of information they have presented, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's the same information, but just packaged differently, Yeah, right? Because they're catering to different audiences, right? But if you're, if you spend enough time, you can filter out the subjectivity mm-hmm. out of it and just get the facts. That's that's uh, one of the heuristics okay. I use, and then uh, I also look at rating platforms, mm-hmm. right? And by now I know which which are the top news uh, news sources. Mm-hmm. But like you know, in my search, if I find something that's not 
that I don't know or I haven't seen before, I'll probably uh, look at one of the sites, right? Like something like AdFonts, NewsGuard. And, yeah. Okay. So you're saying if you come across something on X, I don't know if you're on X, but let's say you're on X and you're like, huh, I don't recognize this news organization. That's kind of an interesting story. What you'll then do is you'll say, okay, well, you know, I have a list of whatever, 30 top news sources from NewsGuard, let's say. I'm going to see if they're saying something about it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good heuristic. And and also sometimes I'll just go into the source itself because you can see what are the other type of news that they have mm-hmm. uh, posted about and you can compare. Some of it, it might be knowledgeable. And you might be able to see, oh, okay, I don't, uh, I think this is reliable, or I think this is not reliable. Mm -hmm. And, but end of the day, it also comes down to, we are interested, we are deeply interested in the phenomena, right? So we spend time, even we personally invest time. So I spend time on, for research, right? You know, I need to stay updated on what's going on. And also for my own personal, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, interests. I read news, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spend a lot of time, but mm-hmm. I know and I that a regular person would not, right? And I'm trying to remember the article, but it's, it was probably, or I don't remember the journal, but uh, this is a list of uh, authors that look at media literacy. Mm-hmm. And they had a very interesting finding was that uh, people who have a high media literacy, mm-hmm. they tend to do a good job of identifying fake news. No surprise there. Mm-hmm. But they also spend more time engaging with news. Uh, they spend less time engaging with news. It's the people who are low on the media literacy. Mm-hmm. They tend to spend more time engaging with news on social media. Mm. And Again, I think that paper was from 2018, and uh, it was a survey-based research. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to know how things stand. But based on even now, sometimes when I talk to people who, uh, who I assume, who I know for sure that they they are very, uh, like you know, we we know people who are highly accomplished in mm-hmm. research and who are very objective in the way they look into things, mm-hmm. right? But I, I know there are a lot of people who are highly objective, but they don't because they're like, oh, that's toxic. News is toxic. Now. Yeah, right, right. Right? So they don't stay informed about mm-hmm. the news and they don't join the conversation. Yeah. And uh, who are less, who are low on media literacy, tend, sometimes tend to try drive conversation on certain issues, and that's a that's that, that's problematic. I see that as problematic, and maybe we do need uh, responsible consumers to be more engaged with yeah. news. Yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that there's maybe some annual media literacy training. That, you know, as a, as meta that you say, Hey, you know, here's a 10 minute, like, you know, kind of webinar type thing. We'd like to, you could certainly do this as an experiment on, you know, company side, but you could do this as a platform itself and say, Hey, 
we think that this will be a, kind of an organic way we can improve the uh, information processing, the signal processing on our platform without having like a heavy handed approach, you know? Yeah. Well, sorry, this has been fascinating. I've only gone four minutes over. I'm getting better at this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Is there, you know, some people want to be searchable and discoverable outside of just a podcast episode. So if you have any social media or any projects you want to plug, feel free. Go ahead. Oh, thank thank you so much. I mean, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation and I learned so much. And uh, I need to uh, listen to your next, uh, you, you said you'll be releasing one soon. Mm -hmm. uh, I look forward to listening to that. And uh, regarding fake news, uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, I really, I hope that over the years as a society, we find a solution that is sustainable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'll try my best and I'm interested and passionate about the topic and hopefully, uh, you know, stand on the shoulders of the giants and make some contribution uh, in that regards. But yes, uh, absolutely fascinating experience, you know, just working on it and even talking to people who are passionate about the topic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great, Seth. Thank you again. Um, as I mentioned to you before we jumped on the, the recorded version of the podcast, you seem like someone who's interested in research for all the right reasons. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a win. I'm glad to have another person who is like that, interested in news media, digital platforms, and the interface between the two. Until next time, folks, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. From Is to Ought is a FreedomCast Network production. Be sure to join us next time where we dive into the construct validity or potential lack thereof around fake news, its operationalizations, and interrogate how this problem is studied in an attempt to recover a frame for understanding the competing narratives around this important issue.